0: In the words of Bill O'Reilly, fuck it, we'll do it live. Hello, and welcome to series two, episode three of All the Way Through the Podcast Journeying Through the Louis Theroux Back Catalogue. My name is Matthew Dunmiles, and today I am joined, as always, by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex.
1: Hello, thanks for letting me join you today. That's kind of you.
0: I know. It's almost like I need you for every episode. <laughs> desperately so alex how are you dressed for this episode
1: i was thinking about this and i think i probably i'm gonna wear my pony skin
0: suit very nice i've heard that all the rage in harlem and italy i have gone for a william shakespeare outfit
1: Oh, yeah, okay. Nice. Nice collar on that. Quite warm
0: at the moment. Yeah, stuffy. Definitely stuffy.
1: I'd love it if someone who had no idea what we were doing a podcast about would now be able to try and guess what we're doing a podcast about based on both of those outfits.
0: Well, this shows where this episode kind of goes, which is all over the shop. The subject is Black Nationalism as it is described. Yeah.
1: So it's Louis looking into what he calls New York's most extreme black power groups in the late 90s, just to give you some time context.
0: And time context is everything in this, I think. It's 1999, February 1999, judging from the events that get brought up as kind of context to what is happening within these movements at this moment. So it's an interesting time for the black community in New York and Louis is there to find out whether they will accept him as a white man.
1: Which is an interesting way to frame an episode primarily about racism and the struggles of being black.
0: Yeah, it's brave. I think the thing to remember is this is Weird Weekend, so the idea is that Louis has to ingratiate himself within the movements that he goes to be a part of. But this feels slightly more clunky than other episodes maybe.
1: Well, of course, we're reviewing this episode in the midst of one of the biggest boosts that the Black Lives Matter movement has had within the last... Long time. So maybe we were looking at this in a slightly more critical way than we might have done the first time around.
0: It's really interesting that we're at this episode at this current point in time because the thing that shapes this whole journey for Louis in 1999 was the shooting of a man called Amadou Diallo, which they touch on at the very beginning. He was a 23-year-old immigrant from Guinea who was shot and killed by four NYPD cops, plain clothed, who shot a total of 41 shots at him outside his apartment in the Bronx, 19 of which struck and killed him.
1: All white police officers as well, in case there was any doubt about that. Yes. So it feels like an oddly familiar setting, I think, for the episode. And I guess it's familiar for Louis because was he not living in New York at this time or has he left New York by now?
0: Well, this is it. He kind of says he's here for a few days, but there's something very comfortably New York about Louis riding on the subway with his his grey hat on and his big leather jacket. He doesn't look out of place at all and like he does in some of the settings.
1: However, he does in the initial opening make his way up to Harlem, which is in the north of Manhattan, and he talks about how it's a sensitive time, as we've already touched on, and there's footage of him being stared at or possibly shouted at in the street as he walks past, which I think is supposed to make you think that he's not particularly welcome in Harlem, but worth bearing in mind that anybody who's getting filmed as they walk along the street is probably going to get stared at and maybe shouted at.
0: Yeah, there is plenty of this episode, which is the fact that this is a full camera crew has to be taken into context. A lot of people seem very focused on the fact that this is a message not only to Louis as a reporter, but out to a wider audience. They kind of choose their words carefully and their message carefully. So we stop off in Harlem and we are instantly taken to a church which has a predominantly African-American congregation. And this is the Church of Al Sharpton, Reverend Al Sharpton, who is a monumental figure in the civil rights movement in America since the 1990s and beyond. So his organisation, the National Action Network, was started in early 1999. By this point, it obviously had grown into a huge community movement. In a 2016 profile, Vanity Fair said... Al Sharpton was arguably the country's most influential civil rights leader. He even goes on to have his own show on MSNBC, which is still ongoing since 2011. So I think Louis catches Sharpton at a point where he is rising as a huge figure in New York and American politics, but Al Sharpton now feels like a very huge figure to most people. I think most people would know who Reverend Al Sharpton is if you mentioned him.
1: And he has that charisma, doesn't he? Even in this small church hall, he's preaching and talking to the church and he says to them to hug the person next to you and love each other because you're black. And then we kind of pan over to Louis, the only white man sitting just kind of off by himself, uh, but he does have one neighbour next to him who he turns to and says, don't I get a hug? And the man sort of says, fair enough, and gives him a more of a handshake, but a little pat on the shoulder as well, It's quite nice.
0: A small embrace, yeah.
1: Reverend Sharpton's look brings to mind somewhere between Martin Luther King, I suppose, and James Brown in like the 80s era i guess he's got some quite good hair going
0: on maybe he is the meeting point between those two figures he has the civil rights conviction of someone like martin luther king but obviously has this incredible showmanship and the ability to win people over which he may have got from james brown he said he was a close personal friend of james brown
1: he treated him as a son he says later
0: yeah and went on tour with him in the uk which sounds incredible and
1: he name checks birmingham
0: shout out to the west midlands
1: so after Louis forces somebody to give him a hug so that he doesn't feel left out, we get a little bit more context about how Al Sharpton fits into all of this. So he is organising a protest or a rally to protest about Diallo's murder, and he's encouraging the congregation to come along to that. And he's quite a rousing speaker. Never, backward, never. No turning
2: around, no up, no out, no down, no submitting.
1: Justice! not justice LP! Louis just looks sort of somewhere between baffled and scared
0: he looks like a fish out of water I think it's maybe fair to say that Louis is not connected to the emotion in the same way that maybe people are today I think let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he's seeing this through totally new eyes and so maybe is a bit taken back by it
1: it's funny though because then in the next scene Louis meets with One of Reverend Sharpton's aides, who's a guy called Ed Barnes, who's a slightly older guy. And Louis says, Oh, it was an emotional meeting. People seem upset. So he is obviously aware that there's a lot of emotion involved in it. But yeah, it does seem like he's observing that rather than letting himself feel the same kind of outrage.
0: And I think this is something that we'll come back to at a later point. But where's the line when you're a journalist? reporting on an incident, where do you fit in? Are you there to join in and feel the anger that other people do, or do you just have to observe and film? It's a fine line to kind of balance with your own moral integrity, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he talks to Ed Barnes because Al Sharpton, who he told, is a very busy man. Ed Barnes says,
1: When we wake up in the morning, we have to come out combat ready because we know the man is gonna push us in a corner, snatch us down, search us, and sometimes he put things on us. So we have something to be conscious and concerned about.
0: Then an incident which becomes a big talking point with many other interviewees happens.
1: Louis and Ed are talking and the church is sort of emptying out as they're standing in the hallway and one congregation member walks past. As she leaves, she says, the white man is a devil. And Louis says, What did she say? (laughs) The white man is a devil, she said. That makes me slightly uncomfortable. (laughs)
0: Louis laughs at this. And I have wrote, thank fuck, because (laughs) I do think there's something to be said for even though he does state that it makes him uncomfortable, he does not try and jump on his high horse here and say, how dare she say this to me?
1: I wouldn't expect him to do that either. But it is the sort of knee jerk defensiveness of white people in general to say, well, that makes me uncomfortable just because she's saying the white man is a devil. You know, she isn't pointing at Louis through and saying you are a bad person. And I think that's the sort of differentiation that needs to be made quite early on. But like you say, it becomes a massive theme, is the white man being a devil?
0: Louis asks, is that the view of Al Sharpton, that the white man is the devil? And Ed Barnes says, no, Al Sharpton, he says, deals with the white man.
1: Ed also says that they don't preach that hate at Al Sharpton's church. So they are kind of distancing themselves from that sort of rhetoric, I guess
0: that's interesting because it shows that Sharpton's movement still is very much in the model of someone like Martin Luther King which is civil rights and it's about integration and inclusion.
1: I think here Al Sharpton shows his sort of James Brown star quality when he leaves the church himself and and Louis tries to jump in just to say hello and hopefully maybe set up an interview at a later time and the Reverend just does not have time for him at all.
0: He absolutely pies him off He completely ignores him
1: It gets quite annoyed as Ellie says, I'm very busy
0: this is one of the things I really liked about this episode was that you can see the seams all the way through. This is not a very smooth Louis documentary. He is literally trying to book some time with our Sharpton on air. It is quite funny that we get to see Louis hit and miss with this.
1: So he has to come up with another plan to entice Al Sharpton in. And Louis' plan is to hire an open-topped New York tour bus to drive around with him on. And then there (laughs) there's footage of Louis standing on the top of this bus, just awkwardly riding it on his own through the streets of New York, which is some incredible, incredible filming there.
0: The BBC budget being spent wisely here. How do you get (laughs) Al Sharpton in? Let's get a big bus.
1: I think you could just get a car. They've come up from the people carriers of C Season one, they're now on buses.
0: I like that use of budget. I'm happy with this.
1: In the bus, they drive to the HQ of National Action Network where the Reverend has his offices. And Louis goes in, and there are shots of the walls there where there's a lot of imagery horrifying photos of slaves with their hands chopped off, some people in blackface, I think a still from the film Birth of a Nation, which is an incredibly controversial film to do with vilifying black men particularly. And there's like diagrams of the inside of slave ships as well. So we're not shying away here from the horrors of
0: racism. It's like a crash course almost in it, isn't it really? It's, It's throwing everything at you all at once through this imagery.
1: When Louis and Al Sharpton finally properly meet, the Reverend just is so solemn. He doesn't look happy at all. Louis is obviously nervous. And then Louis says, well, I thought we could do a quick tour of Harlem if that's okay. And Al Sharpton just says, yeah, fine
0: there is definitely a theme in this episode of people being extremely cagey at first then maybe slightly opening up as time goes on maybe as they get a chance to kind of have their say
1: i suppose you could argue that louis isn't at all doing his normal antagonistic routine when he has these awkward encounters they feel more awkward because he's just letting it lie absolutely so they go on the tour bus which is good getting the money's worth they sit on the top for a while even though it's raining and someone has to hold an umbrella over al sharpton and then they go inside later so definitely get the money's worth worth out of that and this is where Al Sharpton kind of talks to Louis more about his view on America specifically and racism in America and in New York. He tells Louis that the idea of integration in America is a myth. It doesn't exist, he says, especially in New York. And he kind of talks about Harlem specifically, suggesting that many of the black people in New York have been placed there on purpose.
0: One thing he says is there's no banks in Harlem, which I thought was a really interesting statement, and I wanted to see how true this was. But the the thing I found that was really interesting was there was a thing called the Freedom National Bank, which was set up in harlem in 1964 by a guy called jackie robinson who was the first african-american baseball player in major league baseball but essentially this bank which was designed predominantly to give loans and provide financial support to people within the african-american community particularly in harlem collapsed in 1990 during a recession there's a A really interesting New York Times article about this by someone called Stephanie Strom. Its mission was to lend to business homeowners and other consumers in neighborhoods underserved by larger banks. But the neighborhood's freedom served and thus the bank's potential borrowers often did not have enough of the resources and experience that made people good credit risks. So the economics of lending in these communities is often difficult. And while other banks may have survived this recession perfectly fine, the Freedom National Bank did end up collapsing, which is a sad thing for a community. And maybe this is what he's kind of touching on with this statement. There are no banks in Harlem.
1: Maybe you're right. Maybe he just meant sort of hypothetically there are no banks that will help black people. But if it's true that there were no banks at all in Harlem at that time, that's
0: mad. That says a lot, doesn't it? It absolutely does.
1: And he points out the conditions, the housing, says that the area is dirty, filth is the word that he uses, and suggests that the city of New York doesn't care about Harlem and doesn't look after it and its community.
0: They talk about attending the march and Louis says, should I come along to this march? It was just quite nice. He kind of feels maybe that he has to ask permission. Should I be there or is me being there kind of trite? Sharpton says you should definitely come along. But he says, if you get involved in civil disobedience, you may be here a little longer than you thought. You might be in jail with us. So this becomes the premise. Is Louis going to go to the march and will Louis put himself in harm's way for the sake of the cause that he's found here?
1: Yeah, Louis's reaction here as well. I suppose we can probably just write off as some naivety, but he just laughs properly laughs and says you're joking and Al Sharpton says, I never
2: joke I smile but I don't joke
1: (laughs) and yeah of course I mean we all know protesters go to jail specifically black ones but also white ones so wouldn't be out with the realms of possibility for Louis to end up in jail Al kind of hijacks the bus tour and has the bus driver stop at a specific location where there's a new black owned business that's being set up in Harlem as a restaurant. And he says that the owner couldn't get a loan from the bank because they wouldn't invest in him as a black businessman, but he managed to get the money through other businessmen in the black community and he's now opening up his own place. That's quite an uplifting moment because you feel like hopefully Harlem is doing things for itself.
0: The only thing is obviously with the collapsing of something like the Freedom National Bank where does this money come from then if you have people of wealth in very poor economic areas there is chances that you could get involved with the wrong people trying to get money for your business if you have no legitimate means elsewhere so yes this is uplifting but there is also definite dangers about the idea of having to lend money outside the mainstream routes. there's quite a funny moment where louis is taking a tour of the restaurant and al sharpton pretends to lock him in the freezer which i really enjoyed <laughs> obviously they're showing that al sharpton even though he's a very serious man and he's quite cagey at first he does open up and he can be charming and kind of funny
1: back on the bus louis again broaches the subject of being called a devil and says he's not sure how to take it so it's obviously been playing on his mind since this happened and al sharpton says something here which i thought was extremely poetic where he says you worry about if
2: somebody calls you a devil If you had to live in this condition, you certainly would think this was hell. And all hells have devils.
0: This conversation on the bus is really interesting because there's so many issues raised here which are so relevant to today. There is a good conversation about white privilege. Al Sharpton says, Just because of the color of your skin,
2: you can do things I can't do. I'm well known, I'm influential, but you can do things I can't do in a city I was born in.
0: Louis asked for examples, he said, you can rent in better areas, you can get into better schools, you can buy property wherever you want, which is not something that is available to me. Again, segregation and racism really are economic. They're hugely about where you can spend your money and where you can live and these sorts of things, which feeds into everything else. Kind of the best bit was Louis says... There's not much you can say to that. And Sharpton says, you can say no justice, no peace. The idea is don't say nothing because you just have this position of white privilege. You can still act, you can still speak, you can still say something, which is a conversation that is happening right now.
1: I know, I thought that was absolutely perfect and just kind of summed the entire thing up. Like you say. And in some ways this made me wonder if Louis is playing this role on purpose. Maybe not, because I think we were less educated in the late nineties in terms of racism. But maybe Louis is on purpose playing the sort of passive white man so that he can then show how you should get involved if you're in the same boat.
0: You have to remember, this is going out on BBC Two in 1999, as late evening kind of nighttime television. He has to do the role of bringing his audience along with him, I suppose. And they will be people who are not particularly up to date with what is going on in the streets of Harlem. The murder of Diallo became a huge issue worldwide. But for now, this feels like very much a New York issue, very much centered around the community living there. So you do sometimes have to ask the questions, not for you, but for the audience at home, I suppose.
1: Louis asks Al Sharpton about other groups that he could talk to who are black activists, and he mentions the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam is apparently into the white devil rhetoric, so Louis again becomes nervous about being called a white devil. And here, again, Al Sharpton just says exactly what I was thinking in such an articulate way. If you know you're
2: not a devil, or you don't feel you're a devil, then don't worry about it. If you keep getting bothered by it, maybe there's a little devil in you that you're not
0: too sure about. They leave each other in part ways. Louis says, I'll see you at the protest. And Al says, bring your toothbrush just in case.
1: Do they let you brush your teeth in jail? I mean, I'm genuinely curious.
0: As someone who's not been arrested, I can't tell you that.
1: I don't know why I was asking as though you would know like, from your extensive <laughs> prison experience. You've seen The Wire. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: if anyone knows if you are allowed to brush your teeth, specifically, I would say in a holding cell, because if you get arrested at a protest, you're not going down for a long time, are you? Is there... adequate teeth brushing facility in jail that's what i want to know but then the nation of islam
0: moving on we are (laughs) back in the cab and louis is going off to meet the nation of islam he is reading a book by the prophet elijah muhammad who was the former head of the nation of islam called message to the black man and then we're out on the other side and we're with benjamin muhammad who is a new york minister
1: because the Nation of Islam has been talked about quite a bit at this point, and because Louis had a really sort of open talk with Al Sharpton as well, who initially was a bit cagey, I think you're like, oh, this is great, Like we're getting into it, we're going to learn loads. And that's why it's so jarring that Louis turns up at the mosque and is immediately told, you can't film inside, it's a sacred place. So that's fair enough. But they hadn't didn't have any backup plans. So it seems that they just wander the streets of New York in the snow, And Louis says that talking to Benjamin is very awkward. And you see a scene where they're just standing in a shop somewhere, all kind of spaced out. Benjamin has a massive entourage with them. They're all spaced out, very well dressed. And they're just literally looking at each other in silence, him and Louis.
0: It's painful. It's so weird. But I write down that I actually loved this (laughs) It showed that there are bumps on the way and Louis was not welcomed in with open arms and everyone was willing to give him a tour of things that they live through every day. Some people were cagey and not every interview is a success. That was quite fun to see that on camera.
1: Also quite heartening from a journalist's point of view that not every interview goes well for Louis Theroux. Sorry, Louis.
0: We can all have a stinker. Now and again. (laughs) Benjamin Muhammad even though he's on screen for all of probably two minutes, I would say, has a hugely interesting backstory. He joined the nation in 1997, having previously worked with Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement when he was younger. The mosque they go to is, I think, mosque number seven, which is where he is the minister. And mosque number seven is notoriously where Malcolm X was a preacher when he was part of the Nation of Islam. He is now the executive director of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. But at this time, there was a landmark $140 million sexual harassment lawsuit against Minister Benjamin. And there was an interview with a woman called Anita Williams who has put this lawsuit together. She says she was stalked, sexually assaulted, battered, molested, threatened, intimidated and sexually harassed from November 1998 until June of 2000. She says she has spoke to other people who were in the nation of Islam who also saw this behaviour from him. Maybe there's a reason why this guy is particularly cagey. He's in the middle of a very dangerous lawsuit.
1: Basically nothing is said here at all. Louis says at one point, I've been reading the book that you said the name of that I've now forgotten.
0: Yeah, the Elijah Muhammad book.
1: Yeah, and Benjamin's basically like, okay, Louis tries again says, can we just go for like one more walk around the block? I feel like it's like when you're in early high school and you really fancy someone and you're like, trying to see if you can get a snog. Can we just go one more time around the playground? And then Benjamin's like, nah, I have a call. I need to go.
0: Conference call, he says. In my head, I imagined a Zoom, even though we're 20 years too early.
1: He's got to record his podcast.
0: He's got a quiz with his friends.
1: <laughs> and then that's it. He just says goodbye. He says, thank you very much. Louis is very polite and grateful for the time. And that's it. He's away.
0: A disaster. But good fun to see, I think.
1: He doesn't give up on the Nation of Islam, but he kind of has to go back to the drawing board and think of a different way to talk about it and to learn about it. The person that he goes to is a guy called Dr Khaled Muhammad, who was a former Nation of Islam spokesman. He was stripped of his rank from that organisation for outspoken racist comments. So as much as some people at this time consider Nation of Islam to be a controversial group, they consider Dr Khaled to be even more controversial than that.
0: Having looked into his background, I can see why his comments were considered maybe a little bit out there for an organization. He was giving a speech at Keene College in Union Township, New Jersey. And in the speech, Mohammed referred to Jews as bloodsuckers of the black community, labelled the Pope a no good cracker and advocated the murder of any or white South Africans who would not leave the nation within a period of 24 hours. So it's fair to say this guy is controversial.
1: He is an extreme speaker. There's some clips of him speaking and Louis says that he's notorious for his militant anti-white message. He arranged the Million Youth March and was, is accused of inciting violence against the police. And there's footage of him at this march where he is saying to the crowd, it's-
0: Million Youth March was really interesting as well because at the time the mayor who was Rudy Giuliani who obviously is now most associated with being donald trump's lawyer but at that point was the shining star of new york and was a big figure in the september 11th attacks which happened a few years later but he was saying that this was a hate march and was citing the anti-semitic and anti-white remarks as a reason why this march shouldn't go ahead but they went ahead with it anyway apparently this was a really big issue at the time
1: giuliani was problematic in itself though wasn't he
0: holy shit yes (laughs) I've wrote in my notes at this point so much to take in. Every character within this who is interviewed, there is about a thousand other things and a thousand spin-off bits that you could bring to them. It's almost like a novel. There's so much going on.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, the way that they've managed to sort of filter it down and still make it followable is quite impressive.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So... What Dr Khaled does now, or at the time of the episode, is he leads the new Black Panthers, which Louis calls an underground vigilante group. Khaled won't agree to meet Louis anywhere to do with the new Black Panthers. He doesn't want him to come to their HQ or office or whatever the setup is they have. So he agrees to meet Louis in a restaurant. He comes in and he is wearing this mostly black outfit but it has some military looking patches on his jacket, and says hello to Louis and sits down and is very polite. And Louis kind of immediately blurts out You're being very friendly. Like he expected him to come in wielding guns or something. I'm not really sure if it's the smartest thing to say. And it proves to not be the smartest thing to say. Because as you probably would, Khaled gets a bit defensive. Louis says, I've read about you. And from what I've heard about you in the media, I thought you'd be more aggressive.
0: From that point on, Dr Khaled switches on. He puts himself in his speaking to large audiences frame of mind. And maybe that question was the thing that made him realise, oh no, you have to approach this like you would approach a rally. Khalid's
1: response is to say that Louis is kind of proving his point here and saying you know white people are impossible to get along with (laughs) and Louis again asks him Not to be too blunt about it, do you regard me as
0: a devil? And Dr Khalid replies What a
1: cheap little
2: question Is that a cheap
0: question? Probably is, probably is quite a cheap question this one
2: It is not only a cheap question, it's really evidence of what I have just said.
0: So they take a break, they grab some food, and then Louis sits and eats on his own while Dr. Khalid speaks to other people.
1: When Khalid does come back, Louis sort of points out how awkward it was that he went away and ate somewhere else, which just makes everyone uncomfortable. And then Louis immediately asks him, Are you in a relationship? <laughs> I think because khalid has been talking to a woman in the restaurant and Louis kind of unsure about how they know each other and what their relationship is. Khalid says, no, he's not in a relationship. And then Louis says, would you date a white woman? A weird line of questioning, I think, when you've got someone who has this amount of knowledge and backstory.
0: Maybe it's just the awkward nature. If you have an interviewee who leaves you to sit and eat on your own and then comes back, that maybe you are slightly on edge and maybe kind of blurt out things to get responses out of them. Sometimes the questions that are stupid are there to get people to open up. Maybe it was trying to rouse him to speak on something.
1: What happens is, Khaled says, it's never happened. He's never dated a white woman. And Louis kind of keeps on it until he says, well, why would he date a white woman? He's interested in building a black nation and in dating women within his own culture, he says.
0: They leave the restaurant after this and get into a car. Louis then touches on the fact that he's obviously read the book by Elijah Muhammad and talks about the idea of this separate state within the US for black people which is something that Elijah Muhammad and the wider Nation of Islam movement called for a lot during the 60s and 70s. And Dr Khalid says he believes in this and so Louis pulls out a map which is a ploy we've seen used before when he was finding the perfect spot for a survivalist nation in series one. There's something quite fun about Louis being able to pull out a big map and work things out.
1: It's on almost A3 size and it's laminated as well. So it's not like he's had it folded in his pocket. It's ready to go. He's been carrying that around.
0: (laughs) They came prepared.
1: The states that Dr. Khaled indicates are sort of the southern states. I think he says Mississippi, Alabama. I'm not sure how many actually, but a significant chunk of the right hand of the United States.
0: The Carolinas are mentioned as well, as well as Georgia. No mention of Florida. They don't want Disneyland. No. No. No.
1: Although he is happy to have this conversation and humorous humours Louis with his big map, Kelly talks very formally and almost in a sort of, I can't think what the word is.
0: Would you describe it as rehearsed? Yeah. This is why I, I maybe forgive Louis for asking the, the kind of silly questions as a way to maybe break through that very rehearsed way of speaking, which has obviously been practice from speaking to groups of people maybe speaking to the media quite a lot how do you get him to break out of that i suppose
1: that's true at this point Khaled says black people need reparations from america and they also need independence which is why he fully believes that there should be a black state within the united states Their journey takes them to a shop in Harlem. There isn't very much said about this location. No name or anything, but it kind of looks a bit like a department store or there's a lot of clothes.
0: I thought it was a market at first, but then I think, yeah, it's probably more a clothing store or a department store.
1: And Khaled says they're proud of this shop. It's the last of a few in Harlem. And while they're in here, this is maybe that Louis trope that we always talk about where they're doing something quite normal and then having a deeper conversation. And while they're looking around at the clothes, Louis asks Khalid about the Nation of Islam belief that white men have a 6,000 year reign and that that is coming to an end. And then after that, the black community will rise up and will you know have their reign. He asks Khalid if he believes that. And he says, yes, the way he talks about white America, he sort of thinks it's burning itself out the way that things are going.
0: There's quite a few weird but funny things in this, but Louis asks him this question, showing clearly he's more than skim read this book in the back of the cab. And then (laughs) while Dr Khalid is answering the question, Louis is still browsing through clothing racks and looking at things. Even Dr Khalid stops at one point to say, that is a beautiful shirt, Um, (laughs) which is just hilarious.
1: Khalid kind of pulls out a few things and says that they would suit the women that they'd met earlier in the restaurant which brings us back to the conversation about women who date but yeah you kind of see this little side of Khalid where he's maybe he's a little bit of a player
0: he says this top would look good on Valerie and Louis says who's Valerie the woman we met back in the restaurant was called Phyllis and instantly Dr. Khaled gets quite cagey about this.
1: He's like, oh yeah, yeah, of course she was, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then there's a weird moment where Louis kind of circles back to this and says, but you don't find white women attractive. And Dr. Khaled says, no, I don't. And then...
0: This is weird.
1: Two of Louis' crew, Leanne and Kate, and Khaled name checks Leanne as well and is trying to remember Kate's name. And he basically says, yeah, I wouldn't find them attractive. And the camera just turns around and these two poor women who they're working they're in their like scruffs it's cold in new york it has been snowing and yeah they have to just be on the camera now so that this man can say i wouldn't date you i wouldn't give you a second look is what he says
0: the people we see on camera at that moment are kate townsend who is the director of this episode and also the main producer and leanne vincent who is assistant producer so if you're listening guys hello we feel like we should at least name check you properly in this scene where you are described as the queens of england it's all very odd very very strange
1: also if you are listening i'm not saying you look bad i'm just saying you weren't prepared to <laughs> be on camera which is fair enough the clothes shopping continues this is where we get to my pony skin suit by the way louis holds up a pair of beige trousers and says this is horse skin Mohammed, who owns the shop, says, yeah, they're made from ponies, the little ones. Louis says, oh, well, that wouldn't go down well in Britain, meaning because Britain's a nation of horse lovers. And Khalid gets quite angry about this. He basically ultimately says to Louis, you love horses more than you love black people.
0: This is what makes this whole bit so weird. It's a conversation about horse skin trousers and a matching shirt that Mohammed also has available in the shop, by the way. then feeds into this strange conversation where dr khalid is talking about britain as a force in slavery which obviously britain was a huge advocate of slavery for many many years and profited heavily from this and so that's a good point but it's all wrapped up in this conversation about horse skin trousers (laughs) and then dr khalid at one point says i would prefer pants made of a white man's skin and they all kind of laugh partly that is almost performative i think he is doing that to be shocking and i think even louis kind of mentions that and says you're giving me such a hard time so i think there is some sort of bond between the two of them where they can say these sorts of things and it's not taken as direct it's all so weird
1: it's hard to know where the line is it's a weird tension in that scene for sure
0: which only gets more weird when they have this huge conversation about the shop owner
1: yeah so the shop owner is this guy called Mohammed and he is light skinned much lighter skinned than Khalid is red headed and Louis sort of says "Do you would you consider Mohammed black or white? Khalid starts to say that he is white but he has a different energy to Louis and starts to talk in quite great detail about the genetic differences between Louis and Mohammed specifically Louis tries to say that he doesn't think that people are different under the skin which Khalid just shoots him down with that and he says no well you know there's a lot of genetic differences And yeah, he starts to point out specific things about how both of them look. And it does start to get a little bit mean.
0: It seems very odd and and slightly unfounded.
1: Very antagonistic.
0: Yeah. Dr Khalid's comments on the difference in energy and spirit, maybe more about their place within the Harlem community and society in general. But the stuff about Nordic features and Louis's interesting nose an interesting chin all gets so ridiculous and even the comments about Louis saying that we're all the same under the skin, Dr Khalid dismisses this with talking about recessive traits. Very quickly, Dr Khalid's conversation becomes slightly odd and a bit obscure.
1: It almost feels like he's maybe just possibly trying to get Louis back for making him feel uncomfortable in earlier conversations. But Louis takes it on the interesting chin and he leaves Khalid to move on to the next group who are the Israelites. This is another Black Power movement. They're known apparently for preaching in the street in New York. And there's two or three sort of young guys preaching in the street, talking very confidently. One of the things that they say with absolute conviction is that America will be blown off the face of the earth by the year 2000.
0: Louis does not have some sort of booked agreement that he's going to see them by the looks of it. He's just turned up and then while they're preaching, he asks a question. He asks if they will be coming to the march for Amadou Diallo. They say, we don't march. So then Louis attempts to bumble behind their kind of barrier where they're set up to introduce himself and then gets told, please step behind the barrier. And Louis tries to tell them, I'm interested in finding a bit more about your project. And the young man who's there on the street says, you should go speak to the elders of the church. And he gives the address. And the address is the same building as Al Sharpton.
1: Which Louis points out to them and they say, yeah, well, he's just a tenant as well. He doesn't own the building. It's nothing to do with him. But it is interesting that it all congregates in one place.
0: It's also interesting now that this address is a residential building. I had a quick look online and there is a advert for a charming two bed apartment where this building was.
1: So you could live where this really weird next segment happens.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Perfect. So yeah, Louis follows this tip from these guys in Times Square and he goes to the Church of Universal Practical Knowledge, which feels like a very vague name for your church.
0: Yeah, if you thought horse trousers was weird, things go even more weird from there.
1: It feels a little bit like being in a school when there's the nativity play on or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah I've wrote very nativity. The walls have loads of paintings on. There's these gold doors as well and everyone in there is in these elaborate traditional costumes and they do look like characters out of the nativity.
1: Apart from there's a lot of diamante and glitter going on as well. There's a lot of jewelry. There's a lot of sunglasses. It's almost like there's like a sort of hip-hop element to this nativity. The mural that gets the most screen time is a massive painting of Jesus Christ, a black Christ, and he's on a horse and he's taking down the pope in a very sort of bloody graphic scene and when louis points it out to one of the church members and asks about it they calmly tell him this will happen by the year 2000
0: good likeness to pope john paul II. i thought <laughs>
1: As it was when Louis went to meet the preachers in the street, there's a lot of, you stay behind this barrier, we'll tell you when to come here. They want to see ID for everyone in the crew. They want to know who they are. And Louis seems a little bit nervous. He's sort of asking, what's going on in there? Why can't we be in there? What's happening? But then eventually, they're allowed into the room where it all happens.
0: Which makes you think, while they were sat waiting, they've quickly set up this bizarre panel
1: yeah it's like a press conference after a basketball game or something
0: yeah so there is a desk in the middle of the room where there is three chairs behind it and then all the high priests of this movement are all sat on stage completely mic'd up there is a camera crew there from the church itself which uh, is apparently for security reasons so clearly they are not missing their chance to be on the bbc in a big star they thought if we're gonna go for this It's going to be big. There's no casual walks around New York in this one.
1: It's an address, isn't it? Like, Louis to sit and be addressed by these guys who are the church elders. And the one who does the most talking is Chief High Priest Yesheir. But he says that there's four of them who run the church. And he says that the group gets described as radical, but they aren't. They believe in the Bible totally. And then uh, (laughs) he sort of just starts attempting to educate Louis on what the Israelites believe, which is that many historical figures, going back as far as you can remember, were all actually black.
0: He's holding up this big book of the British monarchy, which looks like a bumper edition. And he says the original rulers of England and Britain were black. At this point, Louis' eyes look like they might pop out of his head. I've never seen a man so shocked.
1: He's so far away, which makes it better as well, because the high priest has got this book, and then Louis is like, you know, half a room away from him, sort of trying to see what he's pointing
0: it's mad and so then louis tries to break down this barrier and says is it okay if i come up and speak to you a bit closer and they go yeah sure please do come up and so Ushahir is showing him through this book pointing out people who he believes are black court officers black prosecutors in this photo then he says king george was a light-skinned black man vikings they were black men which is interesting because when dr khalid was talking about nordic features before shows these things are very confusing and louis just says you're browbeating me slightly
1: they get to the stage where they're just going through the book and the high priest is pointing at pictures and just wanting louis to say this person's black this person's black this person's black can you see that there
2: was a black man In the picture they're black. I'm asking you very simple questions without bringing forth any threats. Can you see that these are blacks? They are black people. Give the man a hand. We gotta give him a little hand clap again. I like this. We finally came out.
0: So they talk about the whitewashing of history that these people aren't remembered as being black when they were. And following this kind of intense discussion, (laughs) there's a very nice moment where high priest Isaiah says if any of you want to go to the bathroom or need a drink we have those facilities for you <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then the tension is maybe somewhat alleviated by the arrival of high priest Taza who pops in in this incredible fringed outfit and the priests speak to each other in Hebrew these guys are fairly young looking just so you're not imagining like old guys with big old beards it's just hard to get a good gauge on this setup
0: it's funny i think it's okay to say that this is a very funny setup
1: it's certainly
0: weird. It's weird and I think Louis is almost at the point of laughing but they are quite enjoying the way he's reacting too. So then Louis puts together this kind of pop quiz of historical figures and asks whether they were white or black and the high priest Ushaya is keen to play along with this game. So Beethoven is black, Mozart black, Cleopatra looked black but was white. William Shakespeare, undoubtedly black. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, still in debate. It's a possibility. Christopher Columbus, they'll let white people have that one. He's white. Henry VIII, black. And then Ushair even offers his own suggestion. Wales's favourite, Tom Jones.
1: Louis repeats and goes, Tom Jones is black. I want to be black. Which, yeah, it's just not, no,
0: no. It's, Yeah. (laughs)
1: We get caught up here in the excitement of everybody in history being black. But yeah, going around being a white middle class man saying, I want to be black is not uh, the best idea.
0: But they humor him and say there is, you know, Check out your history, you could be one of us.
1: Yeah, look at your genetic past.
0: This is a very silly kind of scene. But there is something to be said about the history of black people within Britain, especially, and also wider Europe. There's a book about Alessandro de' Medici, which the Medici were a huge family in Florence at the time and in Italy in general, who was considered to be the first black prince of Florence. He was born to a mother who was black. And there's also a book by an author called Miranda Kaufman, which is about black Tudors. And apparently there were over hundreds of people living in Tudor Britain who were black, who often had rights and status far above working class white people at the time because they were brought over by kings and had a position in regal society, essentially. They are not a million miles away from the idea that history has been whitewashed and there were people of black origin in these areas. We leave the Church of Universal practical knowledge
1: as soon as this is over this sort of humorous moment we're straight back into the outrage about Amadou Diallo's death which Louis says is growing his funeral takes place and there are protests at that including Dr Khaled who we see speaking passionately at the funeral one of the quotes he says we should be taking life for a life so he again is sort of saying we need to be violent in answer to violence and Louis wants to talk to Khaled after this and sort of trails around after him through the streets. But Khaled is really busy being talked to by lots of people. He's got a lot of fans that come up to him in the street. There's one woman who says she has a painting of him in her house. He feels like he's this massive, massive figure.
0: He's tapped into an energy and seems to be kind of challenging that for people. It's interesting as well that at this point when they give the context that the cops that killed Amadou Diallo are still on duty at this point. They say that the black community feels totally let down by Mayor Giuliani.
1: Louis does finally get to chat to Khaled here and they decide to head to the Bronx where Diallo was shot. In the car on the way there, Louis asks about how Khaled and the New Black Panthers are protesting Diallo's death and what their plan is on that and very measured, Khaled just says I can't talk about that on film. And Louis asks, do the New Black Panthers want to topple the status quo rather than the status quo moving to fit in around them or changing? And Khaled says outright that the black world and white America can't coexist. He thinks that if black lives are taken, white lives should be taken in answer to that, and that the black community must arm themselves to protect
0: themselves. At this point, they're moving out of the car and they are at the scene of the crime, the scene of where Amadou Diallo was shot and there's still the bullet holes in the door, which is just shocking really to see this so bare and so raw. And this is when they talk about the equivalent killings. Louis tries to call him out on this saying, you're advocating race war. Dr Khalid says that white men only understand violence and peaceful protest has been so in his words ineffective up to this point and so they have to speak with violence. Louis then interjects and obviously doesn't want him to be able to just say this without any sort of conversation or debate but this is all going on at the scene of a murder. It's so weird. It's really strange.
1: It's again that thing where it's like Louis not emotionally connecting to it and I think Khaled gets really passionate here and goes off on a bit of a not i'm not gonna say a rant he just he starts talking and, and trying to get through to louis saying look we're standing here where someone was shot this many times in cold blood and he kind of moves around and says like why did the police need to do that if they were worried for their lives why couldn't they duck behind a car look i'll show you how i do that it's almost like he's just getting so frustrated with louis who keeps trying to interrupt him asking if they can have a conversation about it but he, it's like he's just trying to say to him, like, look, man, like we're here. Like, look at the evidence of this. Look at what's happened.
0: The points that Louis is trying to raise aren't necessarily wrong. The idea that segregation is the right answer is something that I don't personally believe in. And I think a lot of people would be against. But there is something about the context of that scene and having that conversation there that just feels so odd. The death of Amadou Diallo is ever present within this documentary and the effect that it has on Harlem is huge. But to kind of find out a bit more, I thought there is one person who can probably shed more light on this subject than anyone, and that is Kadiatu Diallo, who is Amadou Diallo's mum. So I caught up with her to talk about her experiences of that time and also her work with the Amadou Diallo Foundation since then.
3: My name is Kadiatu Diallo, I'm the mother of Amadou Diallo. Amadou was my firstborn. I've been involved in fighting for justice for Amadou since he was killed on February 4th, 1999. And I'm the founder and president of the Amadou Diallo Foundation.
0: Can you just briefly tell me what Amadou was like as a person?
3: I tried to share my son's humility. He was very quiet, humble, and very gentle. He was an all soul. Amadou was born on February 2nd, 1975 in Liberia. He grew up there and then we moved from Liberia to Togo where he went to middle school. And then we left for Asia, his high school years, he spent it in Asia with his siblings. He had one younger sister right after him and two younger brothers. He was the head of the family because we were not living with his father at that time. So he was very responsible early on. All he wanted to do was study. He loved to read He loved sports. He was an avid supporter of Chicago Bowl, and he loved music. He used to dance to the tune of Michael Jackson and MC Hammer, and he loved Born in USA with Bruce Springsteen, who ironically did a song, American Skin 41 Shots. He grew up loving everything about America. He always dreamt of going to the U.S., The other side of him, also, that I always let people know, is that he was a religious young man. Even though he was 20 years prior to leaving Africa to come to the US, he was very interested in religion. And he used to pray five times a day, we are Muslims. But he also loved about dialogue between Muslim and Christian religion. He was fascinated about the prophets and everything. He used to do research and document things. And he was a great communicator. Whenever he met someone, he would completely be open and talking to people. And he spoke five languages. He spoke our native tongue, Fulani. He spoke French, English, Spanish, and Thai. He was a great communicator and he loved people. He dreamt of coming to the U.S. to go to college because after graduating at the French International School in Bangkok, where we used to live, he went then to Singapore, where his father was living, and he spent a year and a half there going to a program of computer degree before telling me that mom, would like to go to the U.S. Was very excited when he got his visa coming to the U.S. And he settled in the Bronx where he was sharing food with his distance cousin from back home and going to work every day and saving money for college. My son was a dreamer for higher education in America. Unfortunately, he was denied his dream by the way the four New York white police officers killing him. But he had so much life to live and so much dream that he wanted to achieve. And he was a genuinely, genuinely, not because he was my child. He was a genuine person and very, very nice.
0: So this documentary picks up in, I think, late February, early March 1999. What can you remember about that particular time and those early protests?
3: I was living in Africa then. I will never forget that day when I learned the news on February 4th in the morning. My son had told me just two days prior that he has achieved his goal to save enough money that he was going to enroll in college. I dropped everything and I crossed the ocean to come to the U.S. When I landed in New York, what struck me the first thing was the way I was received at the airport because the police had been sent by the mayor to pick me up from the airport and take me to a very luxurious hotel. I was very shocked and not wanting to do that. So I left the hotel and someone talked to me about Reverend Sharpton marching and protesting ever since my son was killed. So I said I wanted to meet him. When he came to that hotel, I told him that I'm going with you. And he said, okay. I said, I need another hotel. So I left the city accommodation one day after I arrived in New York. I remember the first thing when I went to the NAND, the National Action Network rally. I remember seeing many people. It was full of people, very touched by what happened to my son. But also I saw other moms had their children picture on the chest and showing me that they too have been victim by police brutality. Their children has been gone down. So I said to the wall, I said, my son will not die in vain. I'm going to fight for my child so that no one will ever forget who Amadou Jalo was and the dream he wanted to achieve. And it was very quick and very eventful, yet I was grieving in a new territory and then confronting everything at the same time and dealing with the media and everything else. It was very hard. That was a very, very difficult time for me.
0: Reverend Al Sharpton was clearly a very prominent figure in the demand for justice for Amadou right from the beginning, as you said. What was your relationship like with him at the time?
3: I think that our relationship was very respectful, even though it was hard for me to do certain things, but he was respectful and listening to what I wanted to do. It wasn't like pushing me to the extreme that I must do things, but you remember everyone wanted to touch me. Everyone wanted a piece of me, wanted to hug me, to pray and to support. So it was a blessing, but also it was a challenge for me. So what I did was to do the best I can to speak about Amadou, because in the mix of the movement, I wanted Amadou not to become just the stereotype, like a man who was shot 41 times, period. He was more than that. He was my son. He was killed for no reason and. At a place where he lived in his own vestibule, not outside on the street, no one called 911. Nothing was the cause for that force. The officers had time. They could have taken time to really observe and see that Amadou may have lived there. Amadou could not cause any problem. He had never been even in a fight before. That's the problem that persists and continues to do even 20 years later.
0: Do you think that if social media had been a thing at the time, that that movement could have gone further?
3: Absolutely. When Amadou was gone down, it was one of the biggest global case ever because it resonated around the world. People were really aware and asking questions. How can a human being be shot at 41 times for no reason? But there was no Facebook There was no Twitter, there was no Instagram, no social media whatsoever. The yellow movement was even documented in the Netflix stories recently, 41 shots on trial by media. Even though it was as big as it was at that time, the lack of social media gave the media the power to control the narrative, which is to portray Amadou as the insignificant immigrant who met his destiny on the top street of New York people were asking themselves oh maybe he doesn't speak english maybe he doesn't understand police command so i was screaming on top of my lungs to let the people know no amadou was an international a world traveler who was exposed to diversity early on who went to live in many different countries in africa and in asia before coming here that's the problem after the trial in albany the officers got exonerated for all wrongdoing and Amadou was blamed for his own death. I don't want him to be remembered for violence because so much violence has already been done to my child. I don't want somebody else's child to be hurt or arrested for the cause of the outcome of the verdict. So even though I was pained and really could not comprehend what just happened after the verdict was rendered, I went out and asked the public for calm and prayers. There was so much demonstration following the week of the trial, but people did it without causing violence. You cannot solve a violence problem with more violence.
0: How much did the events of 1999 change the course of your life?
3: These events that happened to my son actually diverted my life and my family's life. I couldn't stay back home. I have to come to the US to fight for my child. Nothing else mattered anymore when Ahmed was killed that way. And of course, his siblings also have been impacted. Because we were living in a different continent, we have to immigrate here and go through the process of the trial. And then I created the Amadou Yalloh Foundation because I want his legacy to be a legacy of hope, a legacy that can support young people who, like him, are dreamers of having higher education. Everything else stopped for us. The police, when they brutalize or kill a loved one, they have destroyed the family because we will never be the same. We still have hope for changes, but yet every one year or two years, you have another uproar. It's still happening. What is it going to take for this to stop? I want to call on all the stakeholders to review in their hearts, reach deep into their heart and feel something and be moved to do something to stop this nonsense, no matter what political ideology you belong to. This is a humanity problem. We need to fix this. Human beings are capable of doing the worst or the best. Let us just come together, black, white, yellow, whatever is your color or your origin, because unless we fix that situation globally, I mean, not just the US, globally. We will never be at peace.
0: Unfortunately for Dr Khalid Mohamed in 2001, he dies of a brain aneurysm. Oh my God. Yeah, so the new Black Panther Party continues on without him.
1: That's shocking that he died like that, so suddenly.
0: Yeah, really sad, really sad.
1: Louis after this frank conversation remarks in the narration that he's ashamed of his own complacency so he goes to Queen's to be up with Ed who was Al Sharpton's aide and it's the night before the big protest rally in Wall Street so he goes to Ed's house to chat to him about what that's going to be like.
0: Ed has an amazing jumper on. He does. Beautiful red jumper. Ed takes him down to his kind of recreation room, which he's got set up in the basement. He has tons of vinyl. He has a bar set up down there. And he says to Louis, when you're not busy, come on over and I'll put on some mad sounds for you.
1: I guess maybe in a bit we didn't see, they've obviously struck up conversations about music and he's quite excited to show Louis his music collection. And that's quite a nice thing where they bond over that. Louis sort of looking through everything and points out that <laughs> Ed has a Busta Rhyme CD. Ed says, I regret buying that. It was too rough for me. <laughs> but obviously as we know louis uh, well into his hip-hop so he would have presumably been quite a big buster fan at this point yeah definitely also ed asks louis if he'd like a drink and louis says gin and tonic which ed's totally equipped for i'm impressed that he had tonic on hand and then proceeds to pour louis the biggest gin <laughs> i don't know if you noticed this it's like three parts gin one part tonic and then when louis takes a sip he says it's beautiful
0: And then Louis takes the time to recap Ed through his adventures. Ed plays that kind of role.
1: And Ed's that character, isn't he, who Louis obviously feels safe with.
0: Absolutely. Louis thinks he's had mixed success in terms of trying to bridge the racial divide. And Ed says people are going to say some things, whether they know what it's all about or not. People are going to speak what they feel is true. And he says that obviously racism still exists. We have a conversation about that. And he says it's more sophisticated and subtle, but it still hurts
1: and louis says that he feels that he's had a rough and stressful couple of days it's taking the toll on him i think coming to such a big topic and fully realizing the extent of it but yeah he does seem keen to get involved and he wants to go to the rally and he says to ed when i was talking to the reverend he told me to bring my toothbrush do you think he was joking do you think i could get locked up and Ed says, yeah, I mean, you could. He says that he's older and it's been a while since he's been put in jail for any kind of activism. So he doesn't really know if it would happen to him or not now. It is pretty humbling, I think, to see this really nice, charming, older guy who's obviously been around for a lot of this and, yeah, has been put in jail just for defending his own right to exist and is still such a nice person and so willing to be understanding and to teach other people.
0: Louis goes up the stairs looking a little bit worse for wear after his drink with Ed. Ed says, you don't have to get into that thing, which I think is kind of giving him a free pass to get out if he wants to. Kind of saying, you don't have to be complicit within the protest itself.
1: And then the big day arrives. The next day is the protest on Wall Street.
0: The crowd is absolutely huge. There is so many people there.
1: And we cut to Reverend Sharpton speaking and... He's not the tallest man, so he's brought along a step ladder.
0: He is standing on top of a stepladder which just doesn't look safe at all.
1: Yeah. And he's doing a similar sort of rousing speech as he did in the church at the beginning of the episode, getting the crowd to chant with him. Louis wants to get closer to Reverend Sharpton and follows him through the massive crowd as best he can. And then when he next comes across him, he's kneeling down in protest on the street along with some other people.
0: In the reports at the time, they talk about how he sat in traffic, but it clearly looks to me like he was taking the knee. Whether that was a gesture at the time or not, it is interesting to see that sort of body language. And maybe that's me looking. At at it with 2020 perspective
1: it would be interesting to know because i think the first time it was done in a sports game was only about three or four years ago it would be interesting to know where that comes from
0: it's a tribute to game of thrones obviously that's what dominic raab said
1: <laughs> niche british politics reference for you there the police are there to try and deal with the crowds and they are kind of saying to other protesters, stand back, stand back.
0: Yeah, because there is this massive media crowd around them. There's so many photographers and people with cameras and Louis is pretty much part of that. We kind of go into this with the context that this is Louis's film, but in that moment, he is part of a huge media circus which is gathering around Al Sharpton. It's so intense and because they are lower down on the ground, you feel like it could fall on top of them and it's quite scary. So you're right, there is all these NYPD officers attempting to push people back and keep them at some distance while they protest.
1: Which is a little bit ironic when you think about it.
0: Yeah, and especially what happens minutes later when everyone who is part of that protest is then cuffed.
1: There are riot vans, there are police in riot gear, it's scenes that won't be that unfamiliar to those of us now in 2020 and yeah al sharpton is cuffed and taken away by the police
0: so there's a new york times article from the day itself 28 people in total were arrested because they refused to move is how the police commissioner howard Safir described it at the time he was then asked what he thought of mr sharpton's call for civil disobedience and he says the reverend sharpton apparently just wants to get his picture in the paper so clearly while the police commissioner is under incredible pressure probably due to the killing that has happened, he still is taking a pop at Sharpton and maybe the media focus of his actions, which I don't think is really fair. I think obviously that is going to play a part of it, but it's difficult to say what is done for the camera and what is done to make a statement and how those two are now totally intertwined.
1: It's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario, isn't it? Louis is quite shocked by seeing Al Sharpton getting arrested, I think. He's taken aback by the police in riot gear, and it's all quite intense in a way that he maybe didn't expect it to be. After the protest, he goes to Reverend Sharpton's office to kind of debrief with him. As he walks in, Al Sharpton says, You're chicken out on me. You didn't go to jail with
0: me. His first statement is Louis should have been on the other side with him instead of observing from the edges. But interestingly, Sharpton says he saw Louis in the crowd.
1: Yeah, he says he looked over at about 4,000 people and the person that stood out to him was Louis.
0: Louis tests him on this to make sure he's telling the truth and says, was I on the left or the right? And he says, my right, your left. And that's where Louis was, so he clearly did spot him in the crowd.
1: I kind of love this bit. I think it's probably, for me, the most poignant part of the entire episode and it's good that it's at the end to sum everything up but Louis says he thought that jumping in and taking part in the protest and standing next to Al Sharpton would trivialise the cause and would make him I guess sort of seem a bit like a day tripper you know he only turned up this week he wasn't really aware of all the racial unrest
0: he kind of justifies this to Al Sharpton he asks did he let him down by not being part of it and Al Sharpton says you let yourself down you missed a golden opportunity to fight for freedom and this is the real crux of it the reason why Louis is deliberating this with Al Sharpton is not because he's worried he's let Al Sharpton down, but actually he feels like maybe he should have done something himself.
1: And he says to Al Sharpton, if Martin Luther King was making his I Have a Dream speech, is it appropriate for me to be standing next to him? And Al Sharpton says, it might have helped his dream.
0: Going back to the origins of Weird Weekends, the whole idea is Louis immerses himself within movements, within times, within people's culture. And by standing back and being part of the media scrum at the protest, was he really involved or was he just there observing from a distance?
1: Then there's a great bit that we already talked about earlier where Reverend Sharpton talks about being in England with James Brown.
0: And what's interesting in this scene is Louis kind of following Al Sharpton around and you feel like you are very fortunate to get a glimpse of his time. So while he is talking to Louis about Louis's moral quandaries, he's going out into the offices and asking everyone if they are okay and then he heads downstairs to the record store, which is just below his office.
1: You get the idea that he's always busy, but I wonder if it's a bit of a tactic to keep keep Louis at arm's length as well. Not that I don't think they have a good rapport by this point, but just to remind him that he's busy and important.
0: Definitely. And maybe it's a way to kind of throw him off. We talk about this all the time that Louis gets involved in very domestic mundane chores to try and win people's trust and let them talk. Maybe Al Sharpton the way keeping his guard up is to keep Louis on his feet to never really get settled with him.
1: I think it works. Louis keeps asking what are you doing now? Where are you going? It's like a little kid.
0: As he did with Ed he kind of runs through a few people he spoke to on his journey to Al Sharpton and one of the things he talks about is his issues with Dr Kalida and his plans. Louis feels like he could see people People hurt because of his violent approach
1: and al sharpton gets fairly riled up about this and says dr kelly does never hurt anybody why are you getting upset about imaginary hurt when there's real hurt
0: he says then i don't agree with the strategy but they're not the problem and this is really interesting because it's easy to see why sharpton and kelly are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum of this movement but he is still very reticent to criticize someone who is still going for the same goals as him
1: The line that really did give me goosebumps from Al Sharpton at the end of this chat Louis again is still beating himself up and saying Do you think I should have gotten involved? Sharpton says You
2: not only should get involved, you must get involved That's the only way it's going to turn around is if everybody gets involved And just because some people may not want you to get involved That should make you want to do it even more Because it's right That's the only way we're going to turn the world around
1: I felt like it was almost like he was looking straight at me through the TV at this point and saying, get involved, stay involved.
0: So it's the end of the episode and while they're rolling the credits, they talk about how Al Sharpton's protests continue and then we cut to a scene within a square where... One of the protesters taking a seat on the floor is Louis himself. Louis makes the step up and they talk about the fact that 1,156 people were arrested during this and Louis was one of them. So obviously that final conversation with Al Sharpton did trigger something within Louis where he felt like, maybe I missed the chance before, but I should... Definitely take the chance now.
1: And you see him in handcuffs, he properly gets arrested.
0: The final words that pop up on the screen say the four police officers are now awaiting trial for the shooting of Amadou Diallo. And then in the time since there's a New York Times article from the year two thousand, four New York city police officers were acquitted today of all charges in the death of Amadou Diallo. He was shot 41 times as we've discussed he was unarmed shot outside his apartment building in the bronx so these four police officers received no charges for these actions which is just shocking and 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 feels so much more shocking when you've gone through this whole journey with the intense anger and the intense emotion that is felt by people to then be so let down by the system at the end it almost leaves you lost for words
1: it's absolutely mad it feels like not much has changed and it really should have in the last 20 years
0: yeah Exactly. Nothing much has changed at all. This is a cycle that repeats itself.
1: It's funny because there is a point a little earlier in the episode where Louis speaks to Al Sharpton and says, why do you think things will change? And Al Sharpton says something along the lines of, well, we used to be sitting at the back of the bus and now here we are. So he has faith and he has optimism that things will get better, which, I mean, some people would argue that they haven't, but people are still fighting for that and there's still the drive and the fire to fight for it.
0: That's the thing you have to take from this is that the people who've gone through so much and seen so much terror stuff and had such personal tragedy associated with these incidents in the news go on to do incredible things as we've seen with Amadou Diallo's mother but also since the killing of George Floyd, George Floyd's family have started their own non-profit foundation I'm seeing this in an article from CBS in Minnesota and it says that they will aim to promote social change bridge the gap between the community and law enforcement initiate substantial police reform and reverse racism while fighting for justice, which is all really honourable goals and shows that even if you go through such a terrible instant something that would be such a personal tragedy to have that strength within yourself to then turn that into something positive and reactive is really incredible
1: although it feels like quite a brutal depressing ending to the episode i think we should think of it as just a call to action more than anything
0: yeah agreed
1: and then obviously it can't be weird weekends without some weird stuff happening in the end credits which should be pointed out which is basically like a blooper reel of louis with the israelites he and they the high priests also break down into giggles because louis getting so confused about being asked to confirm that william shakespeare was black
0: but it's a proper childish giggle it's so funny to see
1: who (laughs) i can't hear you
2: this is not the jerry springer show Who? William who? What's the question?
1: (laughs) Everybody's laughing. It's so good.
0: Okay then, Alex, is this good Louis or bad Louis?
1: I think... (laughs) I'm on the fence here because I think it's great Louis. I think it's a great documentary, but I don't think it's great Weird Weekends. Interesting. Can I be... 50
0: 50 look you've bottled out of this a few times but I'll, I'll accept it on this one why do you not feel it is great weird weekends then
1: i think it's such a huge subject it would have been a very different episode if louis had done it as a standalone i think in some ways it was possibly trying to be a bit more light-hearted than it should have been and i think weird weekends works when it can be kind of funny and quirky and i'd don't think focusing on the cold-blooded murder of a black man is necessarily the cheery Saturday evening TV that you want out of Weird Weekends necessarily. I think it deserves more of a platform than that.
0: I think this is good, Louis, more because within the journey of Louis from kooky, extraterrestrial-searching young man to serious documentary maker you have to have this transition point you have to have these moments which steer away from the slightly funnier stuff into something more serious even if it is just dipping a toe into a very serious subject even in the most serious louis documentaries there is still these light-hearted moments where someone will crack a joke or someone will say something very human or there'll be some sort of funny interaction while the balance may not be totally right here it still felt like this was stepping into where louis will eventually be
1: yeah okay i'll take that i'll accept that okay maybe i'm straying like 60 percent good louis now
0: we've introduced a percentage system now this is good news.
1: (laughs) it's not going to get confusing don't worry (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And we hope you enjoyed it, although we're sure you can tell it was a bit more of a serious topic for us this time around. We recorded the episode at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, when the world was reeling after the death of George Floyd at the hands of the US police. Sadly, in the time it's taken us to edit and get this podcast out to you, Jacob Blake was shot in the back by the police in the USA, and the police who shot Breonna Taylor while she slept in her bed have still not been brought to justice. We just want to say outright, as the main message of this podcast, that Black Lives Matter, no justice. No peace.